from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Benjamin Ensor. We've just pressed the stop button on this week's show, and it's a great one. We're bringing you the big stories, including the UK's Atom Bank raises £30 million, and we heard from Mark Mullen, the chief executive, on what the money is for and their decisions about their initial public offering. Pipe's three founders have stepped aside, and we discussed why that might be and whether there are good reasons or not so good reasons for that, and whether it's a sign of the maturity of the business that the founders are recognizing that they need more help. And what the talk are doubloons? We had a chat about TikTok's imaginary currency doubloons. We'll get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't touch that dial. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. Here at 11fs, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as on-ramping, buy now, pay later, the cost of living, ESG, stable points, telematics insurance, and inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome to episode 686 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole Perry, Strategy Director of Digital Business Growth at 11FS. How are you doing, Nicole? I'm very well today. Thanks, Benjamin. How are you? I'm very good too. Thank you. Um, it's also a Fintech Insider debut for Owen Thomas, a Fintech and VC journalist. Welcome, Owen. Can you give our listeners a little introduction to you and your newsbeat, please? Absolutely. Uh, I am for a bit longer the Fintech editor at Protocol, uh, which is a publication that is sadly winding down. So uh, I will be uh, off on a new adventure soon. But uh, for the moment, I'm still here in the Protocol office in San Francisco. We covered... Uh, fintech and i also oversaw our pipeline newsletter well i'm very sorry to hear that and i wish you the best on your new adventure there are obviously lots of people in fintech who are on embarking on new adventures all the time so i wish you every every success with that thank you um and we also have a welcome return to fintech insider for mark mullen chief executive officer of atom bank welcome back to the show mark it's a great uh, pleasure to have you back can you give our audience a little a reintroduction to you and to Atom Bank. I mean, it's fairly obvious what your role is at Atom Bank, but can you remind our international listeners uh, what Atom Bank is, please? Of course. So I'm one of the co-founders of Atom Bank and, as you say, the chief executive. And we're a, a neo bank, a challenger bank. Call us what you wish, really, but a, a reasonably new bank um, offering uh, mortgages to SMEs and um, personal customers and retail deposits. And we're based in the northeast of England in a little quite famous city called Durham. Fantastic. Well, welcome to you both. And with that, let's get into the news. 
So to kick things off, we've got two funding stories from digital banks on different sides of the Atlantic. So our first story was reported in uh, lots of the UK press, which is that Atom Bank has raised £30 million as it pushes back its initial public offering plans. So Atom Bank has raised an additional £30 million from previous investors and is pushing its timeline back for its uh, initial public offering from soon to about 2024 or 2025. Atom says it will use the latest capital injection to fuel further lending and drive growth. The latest funding gives Atom a pre-money valuation of £460 million and follows a £75 million funding round back in February. At the time, Atom Bank said it was gearing up for an IPO that was likely to take place in 2023. However, those plans appear to have been pushed back amid rising interest rates and a looming recession in the UK. Mark, obviously a great pleasure to have you here for this one. Firstly, congratulations on the new funding round. What are the plans for the new raise? What is the, the new raise going to enable you to do? So listen, the danger is that I'm going to repeat something that approximates exactly what you've just said, <laughs> <laughs> which, which would be very, very unfortunate. But I think it, to explain, you know, I guess the chronology, you've really got to look back a little to what's been happening in the UK and indeed the global economy over the last sort of 12 months. And it's been a very unfortunate year on the one hand, obviously with the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, we all thought that post-COVID things would start to get better, but it turns out that if anything, things have become more turbulent. And then in the UK, we've had some very specific challenges around the short-lived government and market turmoil. And so if you add all that together and you look ahead, uh, our view really is that it's a good time to be prudent. It's a good time to make sure that you've got the resources you need, whether it be human capital, whether it be equity capital, et cetera, et cetera, to bridge 2023 uh, to continue to grow your business to navigate that period of uncertainty but you know to be reliant upon markets being open and functioning effectively I think is is maybe a bit heroic or a bit optimistic because clearly we're not in control of that and so this is us basically trying to make sure that we can uh, navigate the company through the the, the storm and and be independent. In other words, not force ourselves into making decisions that are suboptimal. Continue to grow the bank sustainably, focus on profitability, focus on risk. And hopefully next year will be better than some of the doom mongers are forecasting. But if it's not, then you know we know that we we can sustain ourselves through it. It's obviously a ton of work preparing for an initial public offering. I'm sure you've had sort of investment banks and others sort of in advising you. I'm sure your lawyers and uh, lots of your team have been doing lots of work. Is it is it frustrating to have to sort of push push all of that back? Um, or did you sort of realise that the conditions were changing before you were sort of too far down the path? Well, can there ever be enough lawyers? That's the question we should ask <laughs> ourselves. Um, our general counsel is going to kill me for that comment. But... Uh, the funny thing about banks, I say funny thing, but one of the helpful things about banks is that they're quite formally constructed, regulated and controlled entities. And that actually positions a banking model, arguably more strongly in favor of a journey or a route to a listing than maybe other types of organizations. So it's such a tightly regulated company. And you've got your three lines of defense models and your separation of responsibilities, external, internal mm. audits. You know, I don't know how many people are paid to look over my shoulder. 
and and right from the get-go you're providing regulatory returns and standard formats etc 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 so at one level frustrating but really it's it's just part of a journey so as i look at it what's going to happen hopefully what's going to happen is we're just going to get better right so having more time everyone wants more time because nothing's ever perfect and so there's always a tipping point where frankly the time is just expensive time but given what's happening in the world I think it'll, you know, we'll be a stronger company by the time we get there. So, so in banking terms, we're still, you know, barely out of the nursery. You know, we're in an industry that, that is hundreds and hundreds of years old. And so a little bit more time won't do us any harm, I think. And has anything in your roadmap sort of changed as a result of the sort of changed economic conditions? You know, you mentioned the war in Ukraine and so on. Is this a question of sort of doing certain things just later than you had hoped? Um, or have you taken the opportunity to say, actually, there's a new or a different thing that we're going to do that we previously perhaps weren't going to do? Uh, there's an old Jewish proverb, I think, which is goes along the lines of men make plans and God smiles. <laughs> and I, I think you should remember that. What, what's, what's reassuring about our strategy is that we've been unfashionable almost from the day we were born. And we've been unfashionable because we've been focused on lending and specifically focused on mortgage lending. And it's a capital intensive business. So it's risk weighted assets heavy. And, and over the last kind of decade, you know, lots of business models have been focused on payments, transactional, disintermediation via platforms. Um, but, but, but a lot of them really trying to evade or avoid capital intensive or capital heavy business models. Turns out, if you look at the big five banks plus nationwide, so the six biggest players in the UK and their quarterly results uh, a few weeks ago, more than 80% of their revenue comes from lending. In other words, the dirty little secret is that banks, and we're a bank, make most of their money by lending money to customers. Who knew? <laughs> and yet a lot of the conversation in tech and fintech has been focused upon what we consider to be 20% of the market. So in answer to your question, actually, to some extent, we feel a bit more vindicated that, that you know, it's quite difficult to build a prime mortgage lending business. But in a more normal interest rate environment, actually, this model is more powerful. And so our real focus is not upon re-strategizing, it's upon executing, it's upon creating more capacity, more scale, um, and, and, and it's about doubling down because it works. Really interesting point. And you have indeed had a very different business model to, to many of the other digital banks in the UK and elsewhere. Nicole, I want to I want to bring you in. Um, Mark made a really interesting point about you know the, the sort of economic storm that's sort of buffeting um, digital banks and, and frankly banks around the world. Uh, how are other banks being affected by that storm? Um, have you seen other banks, particularly other digital banks, sort of having to rethink their strategies or rethink how they're going to grow? Or to Mark's point about lending, are you seeing other digital banks pushing into lending, having sort of ignored it for five years? Well, I think the result of the economic environment and its impact on digital banks really remains to be seen. We're only really starting to feel the pressure points on consumers' lives as, um, you know, as a knock-on effect from that. But if you think about what happens in the pandemic in terms of spending, where a lot of new banks' business model is, is built on interchange revenue, and actually in the pandemic that shot through the floor, 
we I doubt we'll see that to the same extent. I mean, we can actually leave our houses at this point in time and, you know, couldn't do that two and a half years ago. But, you know, in terms of people having disposable income to be able to travel, to spend, to spend frivolously, um, uh, you know, at, at a high volume and, and make large purchases, I think we'll definitely see that start to tighten. Um, so I, I think that'll definitely impact um, a lot of payments, uh, business models um, out of neobanks. And, and you know, we've, we've seen for a long time that they are under significant uh, pressure to be on the path to profit. And we've seen some pivoting to move into lending uh, more around sort of buy now, pay later or kind of introduction of overdrafts and whatnot. Um, so, Mark, I, I actually really admire Atom's approach and I have done from the start in terms of setting out what you believe to be a really sustainable model and a sustainable strategy and sticking to that, um, regardless of kind of being away from your peers in that sense. So to summarise, Benjamin, I, I think it remains to be seen, but it, it, there's, there is, it's going to be very challenging times. Thank you. Mark, I, I want to pick up on a different thing with you, um, because one of the other things that, Mark, that Atom Bank is well known for is you introduced a four-day working week um, at a time when many other businesses were sort of thinking about getting their employees back into the office every day. You're saying, well, actually, we trust our employees enough to work um, four days a week. How How is that going? And are you pleased to see other companies following following your lead? I am. Firstly, it's going extremely well to the point where we are almost completed the process of converting it into employee contracts. So we ran it as an extended pilot. We were very careful. We took our time. And now we're going through the process of completing it and enshrining it in both existing contracts and all future contracts. So we are formally a 40-week organization, very proudly believe in it. And it's not been a... It's not been uh, an investment in dogma. It's been an investment in data. So what is the data telling you about your organization? Uh, we have lower attrition. We have lower sickness. We have just completed our latest employee engagement survey. It comes out at 84% positive, which is a pretty good result. Always room to improve, but it's a, in the context of banks, banking, and, and industry in general, it's a, it's a very strong result. And so if you look at the facts, the company, um, then from an employee attendance, productivity, and engagement stance, you'd be very happy. If you then look at the performance of the company from an external or output KPI measures, where uh, you know we've just been, we just achieved five star App Store rating on iOS, we're four point seven or four point eight on Android, so we're nearly there on the other side. Um, we've got a Net Promoter Score of plus eighty four, ironically the same as employee engagement score. We've got a 4.78 or 4.8 Trustpilot rating. In other words, guys, I truly believe you can have it all. I think you can have a better work-life balance. I think you can have highly engaged and motivated people who are well and who work really hard. I think you can have engaged customers. I don't, I don't see a conflict between a four-day working week and great business outcomes. And that's before we talk about the mechanical financial performance of the company, because, you know, we started to trundle away at a break even point on an operating profit basis uh, many quarters ago. And, you know, that is a significant trajectory improvement for this company over the last 18 months, which coincides with the four day working week period as well. So we're delighted. That's so interesting to hear you explaining that. 
Owen, do you, do you see many companies in the States that are ready for this kind of move? I mean, obviously, you've got sort of Elon at Twitter, you know, maybe going in opposite sort of direction. Do, do you see many companies in the States thinking along these lines? Yeah, no, if, if, if anything, there seems to be a push to get people, um, you know, back to the office, in the office more, um, you know, kind of all hands on deck, maybe a bit of panic there, um, especially referencing uh, Elon's Twitter. But, uh, you know, I think the challenge in the states is it is the states. It's 50 states and labor is generally regulated at the state level, uh, you know, in terms of wage and hour laws. And so it's, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, it's kind of a hard thing if, if say, New Jersey goes to, uh, you know, a four-day work week and New York doesn't and you have a little, you know, reshuffling of, of where jobs are, um, you know, based on kind of like a, a race to the bottom regulatory arbitrage there. Like, it, you know, it, it, would, it would take action by Congress and uh, we're going into a divided Congress. I certainly don't think you would see, um, re, you know, Republicans in the House kind of advocating for that kind of labor reform. But it is an intriguing idea, and a lot of people have written about the potential for it. Um, and, you know, I have heard of some companies experimenting with allowing some people to do like a what they call a four by 10 work week, uh, which is not really the true four day work week, which is taking the hours down to, I think, 30, you know, 32. Uh, but it's getting those 40 hours a week into four days. Um, you know, there is a bit of that kind of, um, you know, old, I, I, I hate to use the term, but, you know, Protestant work ethic um, embedded in American culture that I think resists a little the idea of a four-day work week, too. Well, let's hope we see more companies taking inspiration from Atombank. Okay. Well, if you're interested in more about um, how to measure the success of the bank or, or bank or measuring the success of fintech, um, go back and check out episode 685 of Fintech Insider, in which we asked, how should you measure the success of fintech? So congratulations again, Mark, and thank you. Let's move on to our next story which is that banking platform for Black and Latino communities, Greenwood, has raised $45 million. This was reported in Finextra and other media. So Greenwood, which is a digital banking startup um, aimed at Black and Latino consumers and business owners, has closed a $45 million funding round, which was led by Pendulum, an investment firm designed for founders of color. Greenwood is the brainchild of former Atlanta mayor Andrew Young, hip-hop artist Killer Mike, a.k.a. Michael Render, and Bounce TV network founder Ryan Glover. Greenwood is named after the prosperous Black Wall Street part of Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, during the early 20th century. The venture aims to tackle a racial wealth gap that in 2020 saw white households hold 84% of total household wealth in the United States, with black households holding just 4%, despite making up over 13% of the population. Greenwood has signed up more than 100,000 customers to its digital banking platform, where it offers a range of products in partnership with FDI-insured banks. Sorry, FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Company Insured Banks. So in effect, it's um, working with banking as a service providers. So, um, Owen, I'm going to come to you first on on this story. We've seen a lot of sort of community-focused uh, banks and, and, and sort of banking providers launching in the States. How much success have they had to date? Uh, most have 
uh, struggled, and you know, neobanks broadly have struggled, especially with profitability. I think Mark made a really interesting point that lending is really the driver of um, you know revenue and ultimately profits in banking. And the problem is, if you're a neobank, um, you you're really kind of um, forced to do marketplace lending. You can't lend directly. Um, you know, funding those loans with your own with your own deposits. The the neo banks that have really been more successful, and I'd point to like SoFi and Lending Club, um, are have actually gotten bank charters, and you know, and therefore can take deposits, um, make loans off those deposits. That you know, that seems to be the thing that's really working, and it's really kind of differentiated them in this in this current downturn. Um, you know, as far as um, as far as like differentiating your neobank offering by appealing to a specific community, um, you know, I'm gay. I'm not sure that daylight, you know, really speaks to me. Um, you know, like there's there's plenty of ways for me to support causes that are meaningful to me without you know having to switch my bank. A lot of consumers in the U.S. are very reluctant to switch banks. So you know, you need. To, I think you need to have a more compelling offering. Um, I would say, though, with Greenwood, there is a specific and well-grounded distrust um, uh, of banks by the, um, you know, by the African American community that they're trying to serve. And I think the message that, you know, this is minority-owned and um, has specific offerings that, um, you know, that keep that customer and base in mind, I would, I would give that a higher chance of success. I would like to see them get a bank charter within you know say a year if they're if they're getting the business traction that would justify that expense i think they need to either apply for it or merge with a company that has a bank charter um and that would be their best pathway mark what's your what's your thinking on this have you um has atom bank developed any products for particular communities or particular sort of segments of customers is that something you've sort of thought about or considered um do you think this this strategy makes sense? It's interesting. So, so no, in answers to the question about Atom Bank in particular, um, there's a universality about around you know I guess the human condition and their needs of an industry or a profession like banking. So, people want to educate their kids. They want to pay for that education. They want to borrow. They want to save. They want to invest. They want to make payments. They want to do all this stuff. And and frankly, that's pretty agnostic when it comes to uh, race, color, creed, uh, you know, any, any, if you like, inherent aspect of what it is to be a person. Um, on the other hand, I think if you look at um, the data that you've just quoted, which is essentially um, where you've got a population that are under index relative to their size in relation to a given, uh, a given industry or a given profession, then you can get an understanding of why the same old, same old just doesn't really wash. In other words, if you don't do anything, what, what reason have you got to expect that things will change? And in other words, how are you going to, um, how are you going to improve representation? How are you going to improve economic outcomes for uh, different segments of society? Um, and we are attuned to that in the Northeast of England because the Northeast of England, for example, in terms of educational attainment in the UK, lags other parts of, of the United Kingdom, significantly lags it. And, and that means that there are fewer people going on to higher level education 
who are um, you know from this region, and so so I'm 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 kind of positive for affirmative action because doing nothing, in the expectation that well you know what it'll just improve, it's not really a very satisfactory outcome. So I applaud people who are making an effort to make a difference. And that's not because I think it's necessarily going to work or it's the right answer, but I'm absolutely con convinced that doing nothing is definitely not the right answer. So go build a proposition for a group of people. And if you can make that work, wow. Well said. N Nicole, uh, I'm tempted to ask you what you think the right answer is, but that's perhaps unfair. But why are we mostly seeing these sort of, these um, banks emerging in the United States, so, so firms like Greenwood and, and, and Daylight, as Owen mentioned. Um, what more can be done? What more should be done? What do you think? I think in terms of them coming to the US, it's just the vast volume of population means that naturally there's bigger communities within those diversity spectrums and, you know, bigger cohorts of customers to be solved and, um, you know, bigger communities with the same shared problems. Um, I think in terms of of what ne more needs to be done. I think that recognizing that these banks are trying to make a difference in the right way with um, you know, individuals that share the same problems that they're trying to help customers with, encouragement of that, funding into that, um, and creating an opportunity for them to share successes and challenges with one another as an entrepreneurial cohort is really important. I really believe in community banking. Um, and I think it's really important for, for you know, some of uh, some of the communities that they're serving that we've talked about. Um, so I think just continuing to uh, encourage that sort of birth, birth of these things in the industry. Um, and I think what I'd absolutely love to see, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get there with, with these banks, is it's not just about the brand and it's not just about features, it's actually getting to the mechanics of the products. So we know that same-sex couples have 73% are 73% more likely to be declined for a mortgage than heterosexual couples. And actually how we solve that is by going to the mecha mechanics of credit modeling. Um, so I think, you know, having community banks with a great brand and open doors and, and, and nice features is great. And I'm not dismissing that. It's just that I'm, I'd love to see that, you know, when, when they start to build the base, they get down into the nitty gritty of these problems. And that's how we truly solve for these customer groups. Well said. Um, Owen, can I, I want to come back to you to sort of close this story up. Um, obviously, the States has, or has, has become a bit more polarised in the, in the last sort of decade or so. Um, is there a danger that community banks like this that are really trying to do good for their communities end up sort of straying into identity politics? Um, is, is that a risk or have these banks managed to sort of steer clear of the sort of political infighting that sort of sometimes seems to characterize the public debate in the United States a bit too much. Well, the, the best example of that is probably Glorify, which was a, a famously quote unquote anti-woke bank. They you know, were going to um, offer special discounts for uh, you know, insurance on gun owners, um, you know, insurance for gun owners, things like that. Um, you know, I, from what I understand of Glorify's failure, you know, it probably had a lot to do actually with just, you know, subpar management. And I think that is probably, you know, more of the challenge is can you find really good uh, financial services talent who wants to work at these relatively narrow purpose companies, um, you know, or are they going to be naturally attracted to 
kind of broader and bigger opportunities in the space. Um, you know, I think if you have a management team who's really passionate about it and they, you know, and they believe in that mission and they've got the, you know, the actual skills, uh, maybe it will work. But I think in general, these companies will struggle to uh, attract capital and attract, uh, you know, attract strong management and, um, and fail as most startups do. Well, I think we're all agreeing that we hope that is not the fate that happens to, to Greenwood and that we wish them every every success because they, as you say, they're, they're tackling a really important challenge that's really hard to tackle. Um, but I think we're all recognising just how difficult that challenge is going to be. Okay, um, well, we'll just take a quick break here and we will be back very shortly. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. Pipe's founding team is stepping down as the hunt for a veteran chief executive officer begins. This was reported in TechCrunch. The three co-founders of alternative financing startup Pipe are stepping down from their roles as executives of the company in a dramatic management shakeup. Miami-based Pipe says it is on the hunt for a veteran CEO as Harry Hurst, who has been the face of the company since its 2019 inception, transitions from his role as co-chief executive to vice chairman. Fellow founder and other co-CEO Josh Mangle will temporarily assume the role of chief executive while they search for new leadership with the help of a recruitment firm. Once a new CEO has been named, Mangle will become executive chairman of Pipe. CTO and third co-founder Zain Alarakia will remain on the board and serve as a senior advisor to the company. In May of 2021, the company has raised $250 million at a $2 billion valuation in a round that Hearst had described as massively oversubscribed. Um, Mark, I'm tempted to come to you first on this one as the chief executive of a digital bank. Um, we've obviously seen, you know, digital banks elsewhere in the world looking for a sort of more experienced CEO, uh, someone like Monzo, for example, uh, led, led for a long time before bringing in a sort of outside CEO. Um, you obviously brought lots of banking industry experience to Atom, but how important is that that? Uh, experience in the industry to running a digital bank is, is does this make sense that, that Pipe actually just need to get someone who's been around the block a few more times? How important is that? Do you think? I thought you were going to you were coming to me because of the word veteran, which would have made more sense. I um, think I'm probably almost as old as you, so I'm, or older. So I'm <laughs> being very careful about calling anyone a veteran. Um, so what you know what you, how you've just described um, that story is really interesting because the founders don't appear to be going anywhere. And when last I looked, an executive chairman kind of outranks uh, mm -hmm. the chief executive. So, so really, what's happening here? Are because if you want to get a chief executive, you know, there's a degree of independence and autonomy and empowerment expected with that role, or at least it's been my experience that that's you know, the better caliber people expect, want, and will insist upon that. And so, I think maybe there's another challenge to you know, really clear you know, how the governance model works and what you've just described. And 
and who will actually be running and controlling that company because you can't really have people driving from the back seat as it were. But if you put that to one side, why, why do companies change uh, leadership teams and particularly sort of fintech or startup companies? Uh, and, and the sort of glib answer is, well, you know, you need somebody to make the war and then a different person to make the peace, or you need the person who can create relative to the person who runs. And that's because oftentimes the skills and temperament associated with the creative force is not the same skills and temperament associated with the sort of management and running force. I'm not quite sure it's that black and white. I think some people get tired. I think some people hit the boundary of what they really are uh, have experience in doing. And it becomes quite counterproductive to try and press forward in an industry that is complicated and is highly regulated and is quite, you know, um, establishment in some of its mores and some of its sort of rules and regulations. Um, sometimes you just need to refresh a team. It doesn't get more complicated than that. It's that, you know, people, you need new ideas, you need to change it up. And that can be at CEO level or it can be at you know, any of the roles on an executive committee or indeed on, on the board. So, so I actually like the idea of changing people, of making sure that the company leadership team stays fresh up to and including the most senior roles. But I do think it's important that you have clarity of independence. And if, you know, listening to the way that story has been sort of described, it kind of raises a question in my mind about who's actually running the show here. Yeah, very difficult if you've got three founders telling you what to do or to do something different every every day. Uh, Owen, have you have you seen other lots of other startups doing this or fintech startups doing this and going to look for an outside CEO? Uh, it's certainly like looking for an outside CEO. That's pretty common. But all the founders stepping down from executive roles at once that is almost unprecedented in my you know in my memory. Uh, you know, usually what you have is one founder swapping the CEO CEO role with another founder, or you know, kind of um, a founder. You know, one of the founders kind of like retiring, stepping back, uh, while the other founder remains a CEO. That's far more common. Um, the only thing that comes to mind is that sometimes founders actually have kind of, um, you know, like corporate governance deals amongst themselves um, such mm -hmm. that they'll vote their shares together in a, in a block. And it's possible that, um, you know, I'm just speculating here, but knowing that those kind of arrangements have existed, we've seen them revealed in SEC filings when these companies go public. Um, perhaps it was, you know, any of the founders kind of remaining was for some, you know, kind of technical reason blocking the company from uh, attracting a, a new CEO uh, or, um, you know, or raising new financing potentially because of their level of control. It, it, it's, that's an, a really interesting in, interesting theory because I was looking at it and thinking, as you said, it's it's very odd to see all three founders stepping aside simultaneously and you almost sort of wondered, is there something something odd going on? Um, Nicole, what did, what did you think of this? Yeah, I must admit, when I first saw this story, I think it was on Twitter, I thought I was like, what? Oh my gosh. This is, yeah, as you said, Benjamin, something must be going on. But then the more I thought about it, realistically, with them being founders and not just executives, is that regardless of what their role title says, they will be running that company until they have their veteran CEO coming in. Um, so I think that as much as it's being said that they're stepping down and they are obviously planning to, in that interim period, I f it may be that things actually 
don't really change very much. Um, but I, I, I like the fact that they were open enough to admit that actually they're builders. They're not necessarily um, leaders of, C, of companies in, in a C-suite fashion. Um, and that honestly was quite refreshing. I think we've seen some spectacular failures where founders have not uh, had the humility or the self-awareness to appreciate and understand that um, with some very interesting stories and downfalls over the years as a result. Um, so actually it feels like maybe they've done it at the right time and it'll be really interesting to see who they do bring in and whether they, they are veteran or not. Uh, it's going to be good news for filmmakers in the future. If, uh, you know, every every time you do have a, uh, a founder team who are very very arrogant, it always horribly wrong. Uh, it does. It's good good opportunity for filmmakers. Um, <laughs> Mark, on a, more, on a more practical level, um, if you have the leaders sort of stepping aside or planning to step aside, does that have any sort of effect on day to day operations? Does it sort of hamstring the company for sort of three to six months because they're sort of waiting to take decisions until a new person is on board? Um, do you think that'll be a problem for 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 Pipe? I mean, or, or do you think things just sort of carry on for, for three to six months while they have this hunt and it's, it's not really a big deal? Well, I think to sort of pick up on Owen's point, what you think from the outside of an organization, you can speculate about what's going on. Hmm. It's been my experience that what's actually going on in the organization is worlds apart, worlds away from what you thought was the case. And then, you know, um, and then there's the sort of story management and, 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 and PR, obviously, aspect of it as well. Uh, the simple answer is that, that the market's not going to wait, customers are not going to wait, investors are actually not going to wait. You can't stall a business for six months whilst you decide what you're going to do next. So, so you know, you, I guess you can, but I, w I wouldn't prescribe it as a, as a way of, of managing risk or managing growth or managing strategy execution. Um, but it's human nature to to speculate about the future, to worry about the future, to worry about who's in, who's out. Um, it's also the mark of a maturing company that it can manage transitions. You've got to create an organization that can survive the departure of its founders. That's the point of them. And for that to happen, there has to be strength and depth. There has to be succession planning. There has to be rigor and discipline and process and control, which, you know, is, is way past the point of the sort of chaotic frenzy of startups. Yeah, that, that sort of self-sustaining business model is a wholly different beast. But if you don't have it, then the departure of a founder, the departure of the sort of leadership card can be extraordinarily destructive. And, and, and therefore, it's a mark of maturity that you can sort of manage the transition and a necessary one. Well, I think we're going to have to get someone from Pipe onto this, uh, onto the podcast in six months to tell us what was really going on. Um, but uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it is, as you say, it's a sign of maturity uh, and, and the founders recognising uh, that they have strengths and that there are things that they need uh, others to come in and help them with. All right, let's move on to our next story, which is that finance staff are ignoring mandatory office attendance demands, uh, according to a report uh, that was reported in the Financial Times. So workers in financial services are often ignoring company rules on the number of days they should be in the office, according to a new report. The study by the non-profit group Women in Banking and Finance and the London School of Economics found that staff wanted more flexible working as they rejected presenteeism in favour of productivity. The study was based on interviews with 70 women and 30 men in the City of London and carried out by the London School of Economics. 
The researchers interviewed workers at companies such as Bank of America, BlackRock, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, NetWest, Schroders and UBS. The report said a move to remote first working in which home working is the primary option for most staff had either no impact or a positive impact on productivity. So we at 11FS asked our followers on social media, including many of you listeners, whether you were ignoring the number of days that you were meant to be in the office. And the results were that 56% of you said, no, I am very well behaved. And 44% of you said, yes, please don't tell HR. Uh, (laughs) So well done to all of you. Uh, (laughs) Mark, um, you're obviously at quite a progressive organization with your your four days uh, a week. How do you think about sort of mandatory office attendance? Yeah, I, I, we don't. We don't have mandatory office attendance. We have um, discretionary and elective and negotiated office attendance. And it's really led by team leaders, managers, department heads, and, and it's in discussion with, with team members. So, so it's really important to, to remind, and I remind anyone who works with Atom, you're not a prisoner. You're not in chains. You can leave whenever you want. We can't tell you what to do, right? Our contract sets up a set of expectations about what we want you to do, um, but but you're not being coerced here. Um, and therefore, I just I think it's find it quite unusual that you know they're ignoring commands to come to the office. You sort of think, oh, gosh, it seems so old fashioned. Um, uh, I'm much more interested in the effort, the input, the communications, the engagement, that I am worried about whether they're visible or not. Just because people were visible doesn't mean they were being productive. You just got conditioned to expecting them to be there over 30. I've been working 32 years. And so for 29 of those years working, there's an expectation that you'll be present. And if you've been conditioned to think that's a good thing and that's normal, you know, it takes a little while to break out of it. I, I smoked for 30 years. It's very difficult to give it up. <laughs> but, you, but, you feel, but you feel a lot better once you've broken the habit. And I think that about flexible working, and I think that about four-day week, and I think that about the office environment. Why don't we focus the conversation on what is the most efficient way to deliver work and put the dogma of I want you here, I want you there to one side. You know, for example... One of the benefits of of COVID, and I hate to use that word in the context of a damn pandemic, but if I look at our carbon footprint as a bank, you know, it's it, it dramatically fell. Our challenge now is I'm not in a hurry to rebuild it, you know. So so we're down to a ton per person per year. And our challenge is, well, if we get everyone into cars coming into offices on a four-day week basis even, we'll see that balloon back. So there are all sorts of benefits that come with managing work much more dynamically and in a much more adult-to-adult way than telling people you will be in the office here or you will be in the office there. Because good people, good people, good employees don't need you. Good employees can go work somewhere else and you should never forget it. Nicole, building on Mark's point about good employees going elsewhere, do you think mandatory office days affect the diversity of employees attracted to a business? 100%, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I know I know personally, I, I don't know if I could go and work in an organisation where I have to be mandated to 
sit at a desk in a certain location when actually I don't want to be. Um, and, you know, I, I am a woman with no dependence. I, I can't imagine how difficult it is to manage work-life balance when you have family or elderly parents to look after and using time to go and sit in a location because you're being told to. It's, yeah, I, I think if companies continue to expect mandatory attendance, I think we'll definitely see a shift in where women in particular are choosing to work. Owen, do you think there's some similar things going on in, in San Francisco or the United States more widely where, where people are just, you know, um, not following orders from companies like Twitter that are now saying you, you have to be in their office? I mean, you say what you like about Elon Musk, he certainly provokes debate. Um, do you think American workers are doing similar things to, to the findings of this survey about British workers? Well, I... I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, Twitter is experiencing a bit of whiplash under its new owner. Uh, Twitter had previously declared itself a, uh, you know, a, a an all remote company, I believe, um, as had Square. Uh, Jack Dorsey, the other company Jack Dorsey was running um, until until last year, um, and a lot of companies, Coinbase, for example, um, had. Uh, you know, declared itself all remote. Uh, San Francisco in particular has some of the lowest numbers of people returning to um, returning to office because um, the tech workforce by and large, you know, kind of doesn't see the point. Um, I think in financial services and Wall Street, it's a very different picture. The last stat I saw was that, um, you know, office occupancy was kind of um, had gotten back up to 47%, uh, which is much higher. That's not uh, offices being rented out, but that's like of the, you know, of the seats available in mm-hmm. offices, um, how many employees are showing up. 47% is still less than than half on any given day. Um, so I think it very, you know, it varies by industry, you know, between say tech and financial services, law, um, you know, Obviously, if you know if you're in manufacturing, which is where Elon Musk's you know other experience uh, with Tesla comes from, you kind of have to show up at the assembly line. Um, so, <laughs> I think you know I think we do have to recognize that we're talking about you know kind of uh, you know white collar knowledge worker jobs here, where where there even is that level of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. I mean, it, there, we're, yeah, we're definitely talking about white collar jobs that can be done remotely, um, as opposed to jobs where you're directly serving customers um, or whatever. Is, is there a counter argument here? Because, you know, I, I really liked your argument, Mark. It's a little bit like smoking, you know, and it, it, it's, it's hard to give up. You're used to certain patterns. Is there something here about managers in certain companies almost not knowing how to judge the productivity of their people and using input as a measure instead of output. I don't want to put any of you on the spot for the counter-argument, but is there a counter-argument here that actually it is good to see your people in the office? Am I missing something here? Or are the three of you not actually coming up with a counter-argument? I think, Benjamin, there's a difference between mandatory days in the office and mandatory activities. So, for example, you and I were in the office last week for an amazing training session with David. And actually, that wouldn't have been as effective from home. So actually, there was an ask, can you come in? We're delivering a three-hour training session. Um, we believe you, we should be in for X reason. And I think that that is, is understood by uh, employees and, and people see the value, the benefit, the reason of that. But when it's just specific days or a specific number of hours, 
it's, it almost feels like it's, uh, you know, a sort of policy for policy's sake. So I think it definitely depends on what you're doing, what you're working on, what, uh, you know, periods of time the company's in um, and what you have to achieve together as colleagues, because often remote isn't best for that. Um, but that flexibility and choice and kind of being value driven rather than policy driven, um, I think for me is, is your counter argument. And Mark, the last word to you. Well, listen, I, I come back to what I said. You're not enslaved. You're not enslaved. And, and because you're not enslaved, you know, if you're working for an employer and they're insisting two days of the week, you get to make a choice. And you can, you know, go and find a place that is more aligned to your needs, wants, lifestyle or, or predilections. And good luck to you for it. If you can't do that and you've got to respect that not everyone gets that choice and it's not necessarily an easy outcome. Um, but I, I come back to the adult to adult, you know, you can generally make a reasonable argument about why you want to meet somebody in the office on a given day for a particular reason. And if you can't, then shame on you. Well, I suspect the visits to the Atom Bank recruitment page has probably just increased. Um, thank you all very much um, for some very thoughtful perspectives on that story. Okay, so now for the section of the show that we call Big Click Energy, which is a quick fire roundup of a few of the more clickworthy news stories this week that we didn't have time to cover in depth. Nicole, do you want to kick things off, please? Sure thing. Thank you, Benjamin. So Shopify merchants knocked up Black Friday record with $3.36 billion worth of sales. And this story comes from Retail Tech Innovation Hub. Shopify has announced a record-setting Black Friday with uh, sales of $3.36 billion from the start of uh, the one-day shopping holiday in New Zealand all the way through to the end in California. This marked a 17% year-on-year increase in sales over Black Friday and uh, a 19% increase on a constant currency basis for the FX geeks among us. The top selling countries where shoppers made purchases from were the United States, United Kingdom and Canada and top selling cities included London, New York and LA. Shopify's business model has recently come under intense scrutiny uh, after the Canadian company's valuation dropped considerably post pandemic. So yeah, on that point, following a loss of nearly three quarters worth of value so far in 2022, this was a great result for Shopify over the holiday period despite the macroeconomic challenges uh, that we're seeing in the background. According to data from Shopify, 52 million consumers purchased goods from retailers over Black Friday with an average basket size of around $105, which was a modest increase from last year's 101. So with customers evidencing that shopping online with independent brands is still very much within their appetite, combined with Shopify's subscription and merchant services offering, and a really sticky revenue base, it seems that the strategy is paying off uh, and, and Shopify are seeing robust growth. So uh, yeah, I will be watching closely to see what comes next. Um, and uh, I suppose congratulations to uh, Shopify on Black Friday and I hope all of the shoppers enjoy their purchases. Fantastic, thank you. So our next story uh, was reported in Bloomberg and various other media, which is that India's banking regulator has asked the Paytm unit to reapply for its license. 
So India's banking regulator, uh, the Reserve Bank of India, has asked a unit of Paytm to resubmit its application for approval required to provide payment aggregator services. Payment aggregators are platforms providing diverse payment options to customers such as merchants. This is a lucrative business that Paytm is trying to expand into. The Reserve Bank of India has now asked Paytm to resubmit its application after seeking necessary approvals from its parent to comply with foreign direct investment guidelines. Paytm, which is backed by SoftBank and Ant Financial, is expanding its product offering in a bid to convince investors of its earnings potential, even as losses mount. Its stock has lost three quarters of its value since Paytm's initial public offering a year ago. And this is a really interesting story because um, Paytm has a um, a payments bank license, which is an Indian equivalent of something like a sort of electronic money license uh, in the UK. So it's a sort of halfway house. It's not a full banking license. It's a partial banking license. And back in about March, um, the RBI suspended the license and ordered um, an audit of Paytm's uh, IT systems. So it's not completely clear what Paytm was doing wrong, but clearly it was doing something sufficiently wrong to get the regulators paying close attention. And we know that regulators around the world are paying a lot of attention to embedded banking services. And of course, Paytm is a highly popular payment service in India looking to embed other products and services into that. And of course, under all the additional pressure of having listed on the markets and having investors. So in a sense, it's good news for Paytm that they're being asked to reapply, but it's not so bad news because they've got to go through all of the work of applying again. Um, but there's a huge battle going on to dominate e-commerce in India and dominate payments um, and having having its license revoked or, or stop having been told to stop onboarding new customers was a big step back for um, Paytm. If you want to know more about the Indian fintech scene, uh, check out episode 581 of Fintech Insider, where we spoke with guests from Tide and Salt about India's huge and, and rapidly growing fintech market. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of the week, looking at a more light-hearted story from the past week. What are doubloons? TikTok's imaginary economy and rules explained. This has been reported all over the place, including the Evening Standard. The doubloon economy is the latest craze engulfing TikTok. It's a collaborative, loosely structured role-playing game where users collect the fictional currency doubloons and exchange it for imaginary items such as soup, weapons, or a giant shark with a horse head. Um, people are collecting coins for arbitrary services, depositing them in fictional banks, and even finding themselves in fictional debt. <laughs> To make the whole thing stranger, the doubloons are typically gifted for free via TikTok videos featuring talking cats, of course. With an agreed cap of 100 doubloons offered at one time without trade, users are keeping track of their currency through notes and spreadsheets and are encouraged not to lie about their total. There are even fictional taxes to pay, theft, and the impact of inflation. Although doubloons are not a real currency, users are enjoying their imaginary fortune while it's around. To give some context, here's a clip of a doubloon exchange on the platform. Traveller, thank God I found you. Have you heard? Well, then I better tell you, there has been a gang. And they are going all over town, stealing everyone's doubloons. It's truly tragic, but let's not waste time here. Come, to my shop we must go. Thank God nothing happened. Say, while we're here, want to look around. And, 
since it's your first time in the shops. Take this. Well, you best be on your way now. See you soon, traveller. And just for sitting through that, we're gifting all of our listeners 11 doubloons each. No, um, joking. Uh, but seriously, uh, Owen, um, is, is this going to get a new generation interested in finances? Uh, is this a bit of fun uh, or is there any downside? What do you think? I think it's actually kind of a, a rejection of finance and specifically crypto. It's kind of a spoof on crypto, right? You know, this is magic internet money that anyone can create by by simply willing it into existence. And the nice thing is there is no blockchain on which it is recorded. There is no, you know, no one is, is setting up a uh, mysterious offshore exchange where you can, you know, have your doubloons taken from you it's you know it's kind of it's got a lightness uh that kind of might be a, a response or you know kind of counter reaction to the dismal headlines that uh that we're reading it's um nicole could gamifying a fake economy create any bad lessons um is, is, is could this be harmful in any way or is this just just fun yeah i just don't know if i can take this one seriously to be honest i think the name Dubloons as well is preventing me from taking it seriously, but I I did actually. You watch too many pirate films. <laughs> but I haven't no I, I've no zero reference. You know, or, you know um... it's a six it's a sixteenth century Spanish currency, right? That's it's in Paris, oh, the see. Caribbean, and all of that. Oh Benjamin, you always blow me away with this fountain of general knowledge that you have. Um, but there you go. I've learned something new for the day. I I'm not sure if we can really take anything from this. It did feel quite crypto to me, to be honest. And my, I was starting to think about, oh, you know, will they start getting NFTs of their soup and their uh, sharks with heads on it or whatever you said it was. Um, yeah, it's all a, bit, all a bit strange. And I think this is maybe the worst answer I've ever given to a question in my life. So maybe that just reflects how ludicrous the whole scenario is. Right. <laughs> there is, it turns out, there is apparently a, a doubloons cryptocurrency that's been launched um, to try and cash in on on this uh, trend. Um, any any thoughts on this, Mark? I don't, I don't know whether you're a huge TikTok user or not. Um, I think you'll find I'm not at all. So I, I'm probably destined to give you an even worse answer, <laughs> which, which will be no answer at all. All right. Um, well, I guess I won't be asking you how you would spend the 11 uh, imaginary doubloons that we've, we've gifted you all. <laughs> all right. I think in that case, we will wrap up on this um, very silly um, but marginally entertaining story. Thank you all so much um, to our guest today. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out a little bit more about you? Owen, where can people find out a little bit more about you? Well, I'm on, on Twitter as at Owen Thomas. That's a good way to find me. Um, I've also signed up for Mastodon, which I understand is a thing. I'm also at Owen Thomas on mastodon.world. Fantastic. And Mark? I, I think the only place you're going to get me is probably LinkedIn. Okay. And Nicole? You can find me on LinkedIn too if you search for Nicole Perry, or I would love to hear from you on email if you email me nicole.perry at 11fs.com. And as for me, Benjamin, you can find me on LinkedIn or on 11fs.com, or I might sign up for Mastodon as well. Okay, 
Thank you all very much for listening. Um, please join the conversation on social media. Email us at podcasts at 11fs.com um, and fill our mailbag um, for upcoming shows. Thank you all so much and goodbye. Goodbye.